From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vague and Indeterminate. Loose Vague and Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. And I'm Mark Shera. Before we get started introducing today's guest, I do want to mention all the different platforms we are available on now. We are now available on Spotify. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, and Breaker. We're all over the place. Just want to get that out there before we get started here. Um, today's guest is Rosalino Candela, who is just as Italian as his name portends. He is the Associate Director of Academic and Student Programs with the Mercatus Center and is also a Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. I think I got the whole name in there, right? It's perfect. <laughs> All right. Uh, he came to us from Brown University and also has degrees from Fordham and St. John's, but his most delicious former employment was at a New York City pizzeria. And some say he may be the most polite economist working today. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Candela. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much, Dominic. <laughs> All right. Well, it's lovely to have you, and I uh, wanted to talk a little bit today about price theory. We're going to get started with that. Um, what is price theory because price theory i think to people that aren't familiar maybe with the field just sounds like another way to say economics but it's actually a a, a specific part of the science so if you could give us a brief rundown of, of of what that is yeah so when we think of the word price theory oftentimes what we usually think of is a synonymous word such as microeconomics right but we can distinguish two different ways in which microeconomics is taught today there's the more conventional way in which standard textbooks present it is that microeconomics is a form of constrained optimization, which is individuals have a well-defined utility function, and that therefore, you know, they just maximize within their budget constraint, and they basically respond passively to that utility function and that and that budget constraint. But when we think of price theory, we think of an open-ended world of uncertainty where the role of prices guide expectations, right, not only in our decision-making with consumption, but also with production, right? Let me give an example to illustrate the point I'm making. Uh, you had mentioned me being from New York and, and pizza. <laughs> uh-huh. There are 8 million people living in New York today. And how is the food delivered day in and day out? How does New York City get fed? I'm, I'm making a play on, Post, on Bastiat's uh, phrase, how does Paris get fed? <laughs> uh-huh. The mayor of New York City doesn't issue commands with regards to what kind of food is brought into New York, in what quantity, and what quality, right? So what price theory teaches us is the possibility of cooperation without command. But more specifically, the reason why I make the distinction from price theory and microeconomics is that what price theory implies is that prices which guide expectations about consumption and production also is predicated on a set of institutional arrangements such as the rule of law, private property rights, and contract enforcement. Now let me just say something very briefly about private property. Private property doesn't imply a right to an object. There are a set of social relationships. There are a set of social relationships about the expected ability for people to interact, right? So for as an example, if you own a house, right, 
it is indeed the case that if you have title to the house, right, you might say you have a right to that object. But the question is, what ability do you have to use to that house, right? Whether you're, right, if, for example, you're restricted from renting out that house, in some sense, that's going to affect your decision making about how you utilize that house, right? That's an example. And, and that, therefore, different types of property rights arrangements are not only going, going to affect pricing, right? But they're also going to affect how people make their decisions, how producers make their decisions about how to supply goods and how consumers are going to decide how to purchase goods and services as well. So price theory, if somebody who's not an economist just heard it, they're probably going to immediately think about, well, prices, right? But is, uh, is price theory or the theory of um, or the, the tools that a price theorist would use, are these uh, strictly limited to talking about pecuniary exchanges? Or could you talk about a broader array of uh, things that actors in the market might be uh, thinking about? No. So when we think of the word price theory, that's a very good question, right? We're not just talking about monetary prices, right? We can also think about, for example, non-monetary prices, right? So when we're thinking about price theory, we're talking about how rel- changes in relative prices is affecting decision-making, right? So with regards to non-pecuniary ex- exchanges, let me give an example. New York City, uh, if you going back to World War II, Right. There were price controls implemented across all different cities in the United States. New York City is one of the cities that currently still has pervasive rent controls. Now, when you have a rent control, the response is that the quantity demanded, more consumers are going to want to purchase of that good than is available by suppliers. Right? But how, what's going to, how is that going to affect things? Right? The real price, in terms of the cost of searching for willing sellers, willing suppliers of that housing, is going to go up. Right? But how is that going to, how does that price control, how is that going to affect the decision making of suppliers and sellers? Well, if people are searching, right, if buyers and sellers are, will, are searching for each other, well, that's a missed opportunity. In effect, what is happening is that what will be created is an opportunity for exchange to circumvent the control, right? So an example of this is tying, right? These are an example of tie-in sales, tying in, for example, the sale of furniture with an apartment or charging a key fee. One of the things I talk about with my students in my own class is in the example of price controls that existed with gasoline in the United States, right? And that affected the relative price of, for example, motor oil. Now, how you might ask yourself, how does it affect the price of motor oil? Well, if you're waiting online to get gasoline, well, what's a tie-in sale by which you can circumvent the price control? Right? So imagine you, Marcus, you go up, you're waiting for online for gasoline. And I come up as the gas station attendant. I say, hey, Marcus, would you like a, an oil change? And I go, wink, wink. Right, and you go and get your oil change, and what happens? I bring the gasoline to you. Right, mm-hmm. it's not illegal for me to bring the gasoline to you directly. Right, but by you getting the oil change, right, you can get the gasoline and circumvent the queue waiting online. Although that's not a situation 
compared to the situation where there would be free pricing a, and if a more efficient allocation of resources. In that situation, that's the best they, that individuals can do given the situation that they're operating in. Uh, we've talked a little bit about price theory, or what, what it gets used for, but could you tell us a little bit about um, the, some of the major uh, figures in price theory? So I'm going to ask you, top three price theorists, who are your three favorites? I'm going to cheat on this question. <laughs> and the way I'm going to cheat is I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to be three, but they're going to be in combinations. <laughs> so, and this is in no particular chronological order, although the, maybe the first two people are. Uh, the first is Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek. The second would be Buchanan and Tulloch. And then the third would be Armin Alkshin and Harold Emsetz. Now, let me talk a little bit about von Mises and Hayek, because in many ways what the, the arguments that they made were complementary and reinforced each other. The reason why I regard Mises as a very important uh, if not one of the most important price theorists in the 20th century, is because what he realized is that property or p- prices without private property don't exist. So in the early 20th century, there was a, a debate amongst economists about the, the ability for economies to be planned, right, centrally planned through a board by the government and whether they could produce services, goods and services, and allocate them to their most valued uses. But the way that Mises uh, posed this question is, let's give an example of the production of a railroad. We usually look at railroads and observe that they're built with iron rather than platinum. Now, someone might ask, well, why are they built with iron? And someone might say, oh, well, the iron's more plentiful, right? It's more abundant. Okay. That's true, and therefore it's reflected in in the price. But then there's a question, well, how do you know that? And someone might say, oh, yeah, well, the price tells us the price is lower compared to platinum, and that therefore that, that basically tells us it's more abundant. And then the next question is, well, how do you know that? And I usually I use this example in my classes, and that's where students get, right? Then they start to think to themselves, well, yeah, how do I know that? And I ask, well, what's a price? And then there's right, a bit more bewilderment. Right? Well, they have to think, and like, what, does, what is a price? A price is fundamentally an exchange ratio. It's the, it's the terms in which two goods are exchanged, not necessarily in money. Right? It could be two different goods, like, for example, apples and oranges. Now, what does that imply? That outside the context of exchange, the information that's embodied about your subjective value, valuation, for example, suppliers bidding competing for platinum or for iron, outside of that context of exchange, that information doesn't even exist, right? And that fundamental point is what Mises harped on with regards to arguing what it is, what are the unintended consequences of planning, right, by an economy, is that outside the context of private property, the ability for producers to be guided in their expectations of whether they're overusing or underutilizing a resource. Namely, for example, platinum, right? Without those, res- without those prices, right? We could imagine a situation in which a planner is using platinum to build railroads and not placing them in more valued uses. For example, making 
catalytic converters in cars, right? And that's something that Hayek built upon with regards to Mises, that, that the nature of prices is not that they bring together the tacit and dispersed knowledge that's available to individuals. It's, it's contextual knowledge. It's knowledge that emerges within a context of private property. What Buch- the, the genius of Buchanan and Tulloch is that they were able to bring the tools of price theory into understanding non-market settings. Like how do ind- individuals engage in non-market decision-making right? within a context in which private property rights are not well-defined? Right? It, and that doesn't imply, for example, wh- whether we're talking about the market or the public sector, somehow people are good in the market or bad in the market or they're good in the public sector or bad in the public sector. What we study is the, the, the rules of the game under those two situations and then observe, well, how do they, right, how do they operate? How are they in- incentivized to act? So you just mentioned, uh, talking about von Mises and Hayek, that uh, one of their insights was that you can't really have prices without property. Mm-hmm. But then the, in Buchanan and Tulloch's scenario, where they're analyzing political exchanges, there aren't mm-hmm. well-defined property rights. Mm-hmm. So how, in that sense, can price theory be mapped onto politics? What are the prices in politics that price theory is studying? The prices that are being studied in politics, you could think of them in terms of how different rules, different political decision-making rules are going to affect pricing. So let me give an example, right, with regards to externalities, right? So an externality, it's a spillover cost onto third parties, right? It's an involuntary spillover cost onto a third party to an exchange. Now, why are there spillover costs? It's because there aren't well-defined property rights, right? The individuals to the exchange are not bearing the full cost of their decision-making. Now, that's a, that's a situation that exists in markets if property rights are not well-defined. But, and that argument is, is perfectly applicable in a non-market po- setting, such as in political decision-making. So what Buchanan argued is, how do we price this externality in such a way so that there aren't spillover costs from majority decision-making, right, onto, for example, a minority group. And the rule that we would follow, for example, in devising what he regarded as constitutional arrangements, is unanimity. The more unanimity, the more we can agree on the rules, then as a byproduct of our agreement of the rules, we can internalize political externalities and therefore price the decision-making into right political decision making let me give a, a perfect example of what i'm trying to illustrate right i'm sure both of you have drink coca-cola or fanta right <laughs> now i love fanta it's to it's an understatement to say that it's a slice of heaven on earth <laughs> especially if you're drinking it in europe or mexico mm-hmm. i can't even touch the stuff here in the u.s well why is that occurring if you if you look at the price of sugar in the United States, it's roughly one and a half to double the price on world markets. Well, why is that occurring? There are taxes on imports of foreign sugar, right? These are tariffs. 
which basically creates a situation in which the supply of the domestic supply of sugar is restricted, bidding the price up. So producers of soft drinks, what they, what they do is, and we could use price theory to understand this, the demand for a substitute such as corn syrup increases. And that, that affects the taste of not just Coca-Cola or Fanta, but other soft drinks. Right? But you ask yourself, why does this occur? Right? Why does something like this occur? And we could use price theory to understand this in terms of the idea of rational ignorance. So we know about this activity, but the question is, how many of you, do you guys know how much you spend on sugar each year in terms of your budget? I have no idea. Neither do I. <laughs> you know, as aggravated as it is, I can't, good, can't get good Fanta. I literally don't know how much more I spend. Mm-hmm. But it, would it be worth my time, right, in terms of the cost, would it be worth my time to gather uh, information? Probably not, right? Therefore, I don't gather that information. Mm-hmm. And that, therefore, right, this policy remains in place because the cost of gathering information about this to offset it, right, in terms of informing, you know, my, my representative in Congress or so on and so forth, it just becomes very, very costly. So, and, and Florida has one of the largest uh, delegations in the House of Representatives as well, yeah. which, which certainly, certainly doesn't help. I, I think one of the really important things about price theory that people don't get sometimes especially in the context of central planning and thinking about that is that um you know price theory teaches us that prices don't just arise from some businessman sitting in an office just deciding what the price is um there's a whole lot of different things that go involved in that are involved with that and so if it were true that there was some ceo sitting in a boardroom setting all the prices it would make a little bit more sense to say well i think your price is too high and you should lower it but when we realize that that's not actually how decisions are made, and that's not actually how how businesses set their prices, um, that really weakens the the case for central planning. Yes, uh, but I I want to make one thing very clear, Dominic, and I I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I don't want to give the impression that I'm making the claim that markets are perfect. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'm I would state very very explicitly that markets are imperfect. Mm-hmm. Now, this gets back to your point about price theory, because there are two ways we could think about thinking about the claim and saying that markets are imperfect. Think about it in terms of microeconomics, and then think of it in terms of price theory. Now, the more mainstream approach to microeconomics today, what it studies is, right, the, the approach that it takes is to study the market in terms of equilibrium states, equilibrium states of the world, which means that the benchmark by which we assess markets is perfect competition, right? Where there's perfect information, individuals are price takers, they're selling homogenous good, etc. Now, deviations in that situation from the market will be regarded as imperfect, mm-hmm. right? For example, there will be what we call market failures associated with externalities, asymmetric information, public goods, macroeconomic instability, so on and so forth. Now, you might ask yourself, well, we say there are market failures. That must imply that markets are flawed or suboptimal. Now, if we're reasoning through our understanding of economics through that traditional microeconomic approach, that's not an inconsistent conclusion. That conclusion follows from that method of understanding what economics is about. 
mm-hmm. the study of equilibrium states. But there's another way we could think about it in terms of price theory, which is, is that if we think about, and price theory explicitly studies a world in which we are in disequilibrium, where plans don't perfectly match between buyers and sellers. But if we look and we think about the etymology of the word, imperfect, deriving it from its Latin roots, slice up the word in three parts. The first part is im, from the, from the Latin. So I'm, I'm a Catholic schoolboy, so I had to learn this stuff. <laughs> the im is the negation. It means not. The per, P-E-R, in Latin, refers to something being thorough, right, or thoroughly. Okay. And then the fect comes from the verb facit. It means to do. So one way we could think about the word imperfect, right, which follows from its etymology, is that imperfections imply something that's not thoroughly done or incomplete. And that's what price theory teaches us. It teaches us that the market process is one that tends towards completion, that tends towards equilibrium, which implies that right, we don't dismiss and we don't deny the fact that there are market failures in the world associated with externalities, asymmetric information, public goods, and macroeconomic stability. But what price theories teaches us is that those market failures present future profit opportunities for entrepreneurs to erode the failure. In other words, yes, it is indeed markets are imperfect, but from a price theoretic perspective, that's the point. Mm -hmm. It's precisely because we are an imperfect world, right, that markets are required. They're an error correction mechanism. They're a learning mechanism. It teaches entrepreneurs when they've made a mistake. If you earn a profit, that implies under the conditions of well-defined property rights, under the rule of law, it's very important. Mm -hmm. If if producers earn profits, that means they delivered a good or service that consumers value. Mm -hmm. If they sustain a loss, that implies that the inputs that went into the production of that good had more valued uses elsewhere. But this goes back to Mises's point about prices without property. If entrepreneurs don't have property rights, implying they don't have responsibility, they don't have accountability for their decision-making, they will not learn from their mistakes. And that's what price theory teaches us, is that the market process is an error correction mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we covered... Um Mises and Hayek, we covered Buchanan and Tulloch. You also mentioned Elshin and Demzetz, which yeah. are two names that anybody who took uh, Professor Rustici's microeconomics class will be very familiar with for their theory of the firm. But uh, what is the um, – well, uh, just finish up with those two uh, price theorists as well. Yeah, what's fascinating about Elshin and Demzetz is that they were able um, – and Elshin specifically building from Mises – to build upon the point about how different types of property rights arrangements will, as a byproduct, generate different types of pricing arrangements. So let me give an example. You know, we're in Fairfax today. You can go across the street to Giant, and what you'll notice is you'll arrive at, at a point. You'll you'll come into the shopping center, and you'll notice that people are not paying monetary prices for parking. So in effect, there's zero priced parking. But the question is, why right, Why is that happening? And what Demsets illustrated to us is that if you notice in every, every shopping center, there's always one big store. 
right? There's a big name brand store around which there are little stores. Mm -hmm. What we also observe is that generally speaking, right? And I say this is a general tendency. It's not by any means in every shopping center. Although the large anchor store, whether it be a CVS, a Home Depot, a Giant, you might say, although they deliver revenue, less revenue per square footage, compared to the other stores in the shopping center, they generally are charged a lower rent per square footage. Now, why is that the case, right? In effect, they're delivering what you might call a positive externality, which the shopping center owner is internalizing by offering the anchor store to be there a lower rent, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the Coast Theorem in in operation. But the question is, is, well, why do we see zero price parking and shopping? Well, land is relatively abundant in Fairfax compared to D.C. So if you go to D.C., right, parking is generally priced. Yeah. Given that parking is more abundant, the cost of, and this goes to what Alction and Demsets talked about, the cost and metering and monitoring who's using the parking and for how much time, those costs outweigh the benefits. Mm -hmm. So how is the cost of providing this parking recouped? It's priced into the goods and services being sold, right, in the shopping mall itself. Mm -hmm. And that's how it's provided. Given, right, so what's very, very important with regards to price theory is that we live in a positive transaction cost world. We live, right, this is what Coase talked about. And given that we live in a positive transaction cost world, that that implies, the, which is a barrier to trade, that's a profit opportunity for entrepreneurs to devise contractual and institutional arrangements to reduce those, those transaction costs. So an example is firms, as Coase talked about, mm-hmm. which Auction and Demsets built upon with the theory of, of team production. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, what... What Alexion and Demsets were able to do is they were able to apply property rights arrangements in all sorts of scenarios, right, to understand why in different situations different goods get get priced in different ways. So um, something that Hayek once said that uh, many people know is that if an economist is only an economist, he is likely to become a nuisance, if not a positive danger. So is, does that apply to price theorists? So if somebody is a price theorist and only a price theorist, what are the dangers of uh, being blind to other things in economics and outside of economics? So I don't think if you are a price theorist, you can just be a price theorist in, in the sense that by studying price theory, you're naturally inclined to study not just, for example, relative prices and relative price changes, by implication, you do have to study contractual institutional arrangements, and you have to study the manifestation of those contractual institutional arrangements in time and place, which implies you have to study history, you have to study, you have to know a bit about political science, you have to know a bit about sociology, right? Because one way to think about price theory is that we're not studying the world that it, that's observed in, on the blackboard, what we're studying is we're using as a tool to understand history. So price theory, right, is a tool for understanding history. And what's also important about that is 
when you think of economic theory itself, right, the, the purpose of economic theory and the role that studying relative price dynamic plays into that, its purpose, I, and I say very specifically to understand history, that's different from defining history. In other words, if you have a theory that has ruled out certain historical events because they don't fit the model that you're studying, you have a bad theory. So there are all sorts of institutional and contractual arrangements that entrepreneurs have been able to devise that traditional microeconomic theory can't explain. Why? Because the theory simply rules it out. So an example to illustrate this point is a project that I've been most recently working on is with regards to light sh- the light ship in economics. And that is built, and the, the contribution that I've been making in that project is just a very, very small step of building upon what Ronald Coase had done. So let me be- give a bit of context, if I may, about that. If you open a traditional economics, microeconomic textbook, w- there are two textbook examples of what we talk about as public goods, right? One is, for example, national defense, but another is lighthouses, right? Now, what do we mean by a public good? What we mean by a public good is a good, right, which is non-excludable and non-rivalrous, right? What we Non-excludable means you can't, right, that there's free riding. You can't exclude non-payers from the benefits of, the, of using the good itself. And non-rivalry implies that multiple individuals can simultaneously consume this good at the same time. So think of this in terms like a movie theater. You go to a movie theater, multiple people can watch it at the same time. In the most technical sense, this implies that the marginal cost of adding an additional consumer is zero. Right? So essentially you have a horizontal supply curve. That's one way to think about it. Now, one thing about Coase is I refer to him as the whistleblower of economics. What I mean by that is economists oftentimes, like Paul Samuelson, would, or, or for example, A.C. Pagu, would argue, well, we need these type of solutions, for example, in time, in, with respect to externalities. Right? A.C. Pagu proposed we needed taxes or subsidies for addressing externalities. But what Coase illustrated is, well, maybe there's a potentially another solution. We could define property rights in that good. With regards to public goods theory, what Coase had illustrated, and, and this example of the use of the lighthouse was first used in the fifth edition, if I'm, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in Paul Samuelson's uh, textbook called uh, Economics. And the example that he gives in the textbook is, well, if, there's, if there are people passing in the middle of the night, well, how are you going to be able to stop? How, can you stop free riders from doing so, right? from benefiting from the use of the light ship, right? Because multiple ships can use the same light. In that sense, it's non-rivalrous and non-excludable. So that, therefore, Samuelson concluded there's a role that government needs to play in order to finance the provision of this lighthouse, namely through, through, through taxes, right, or just the, the production itself. Well, what Coase said is, well, let's move away from the blackboard. Let's actually, um, to use a sports re- reference, right, let's go to the film. 
and see what actually happened in history. And what Coase illustrated is that between the 16th century and the 19th century, there actually was a private market for lighthouses in which entrepreneurs would, be, would privately produce, operate, and finance those lighthouses. Now, the question you ask is how were they able to exclude non-payers? Well, the way that lighthouses would be, would be built are specifically on those portions of the Thames River running through London in which it's difficult and dangerous to navigate the water. That's number one. And but more more importantly, those lighthouses would be located, right, where ships would be very, very likely to dock at ports and that the ports themselves served as an excludability mechanism, mechanism, one by which agents of the lighthouses could then collect what were called light dues or fees from the lighthouse owners. Now, there has been much pushback about Coase's analysis, and rightly so, because, but rightly so and wrongly so. In Coase's own analysis, he did argue, well, this is just a preliminary analysis that will require more work. It, that although this was a private market, which was the, right, and, and Coase by no means was saying there was no role for the government. He said, he, he specified there is a very specific role, which is, the government has a role in enforcing private property rights and contractual exchange. However, he did admit that there was one obscurity or one exception to this was in the nature of the pricing of the good. And, and what other economists have come to talk about with regard to Coase is they have challenged the notion that this was a completely private market, specifically with respect to the financing. So with regards to how a lighthouse would be financed was very, very interesting in England prior to the 19th century, England and Wales more specifically, is that for a prospective entrepreneur who wanted to establish a lighthouse, what they would have to apply is for a license, specifically what's called a letters patent, which would initially be, initially they had been provided by the king, but then were distributed by the lighthouse authority that administrated the lighthouse system in England and Wales, which was called Trinity House. And entrepreneurs would apply for this letters patent, which would give them the ability to operate the lighthouse in exchange for a rent, a payment above opportunity cost, right, to Trinity House. So they would get the permission to operate this lighthouse right, in exchange for a payment, right, a cut of of the profits that are generated uh, from the light dues that are generated and collected from the lighthouse owners. In doing so, however, though, it was indeed the case that these were not freely floating prices that existed in the market based on supply and demand analysis. These were prices that were fixed and set by Trinity House itself. So one might argue, well, yes, this is not Right. This is not truly a private market. But as I said before, right, a situation where there's a market failure creates a profit opportunity to address and erode and ameliorate the market failure. Because one of the problems associated with the functioning of the lighthouse system and the justification for its nationalization beginning in 1836 was that there was monopoly power 
that had existed in the lighthouse system. That, for example, light, light dues were too high. So the justification was that the lighthouse should be nationalized in order to charge lower light dues. But that's not the whole story, right? What we have to include in the story, and Coase mentioned this very, very briefly, is that there were things that were called floating lighthouses. These were, in effect, ships that operated like lighthouses with... Right, which emitted light so that ship owners and merchants could operate on the Tam- Thames River very effectively and safely. Now, why is this important? Given that light dues were very, very high, there were a lot of profits to be made in this market. And there were two entrepreneurs who were able to utilize right, what they regarded as an unnoticed profit opportunity. So one way from a price theoretic perspective is what we view as a market failure is more appropriately thought of as a missing market. It's a market that has not been filled. And and these two entrepreneurs, namely David Avery and Robert Hadlin, actually saw an opportunity to establish a light ship where previously Trinity House would not have allowed to, to do so. Now, you ask yourself, how did this happen? Because, in effect, they were able to charge lower prices, which undercut the other lighthouses. So in, one way to think about this for the listeners is this was the battle between taxi cabs and Uber of their day. right? So Avery and Havlin were the Lyft and Uber of the 19th century, you might say, or 18th century more specifically, because this is in 1731. So they were challenging Trinity House and the letters patent that they were distributing and the monopoly power that was being created through the distribution of these letters patent, kind of like taxicab medallions in New York City. Mm-hmm. And Avery and Hamlin were creating this technological innovation that would erode the profits of the existing lighthouses. And the way that they did so is they didn't apply for a traditional patent in the sense would grant them government enforcement of the collection of payment, right? Because in doing so, you had to give Trinity House a cut of the payment. What they argued was, no, we're providing a new technology that will complement the existing system, not to substitute it, so that different lighthouses can be distinguished from each other. But once Trinity House caught notice of what was happening, right, Trinity House basically sued in a petition that, that my co-author and I, um, Vincent Geloso, were able to gather from the archives. And what the petition specifically say, states is the lightship owners, David Avery and Robert Hablin, they shouldn't be allowed to operate this lighthouse right? because they don't have a prerogative. They are not allowed to be collecting light dues in the first place. Right? This is our prerogative. So what has been regarded as a market failure due to the underprovision of public goods with regards to lighthouses right, was not a market failure, but it was a failure of the market to exist due to the impossibility, due to the exclusion of technological innovations that would have addressed the market failure. 
all this talk of entrepreneurs uh, is making me think of um, market process theory and Israel Kirzner. So could you tell us, is there any difference between uh, market process theory and price theory? Is one a subset of the other? Is there any tension between the two? What exactly is market process theory? No, I see them traditionally as, as one and the same. So the, the theory of what Israel Kirzner refers to as the theory of the entrepreneurial market process is a study of how entrepreneurs acting under sheer ignorance, as he would say, under radical uncertainty in an open-ended world, how the price mechanism right, facilitates not only learning, but in that learning, what it does is it creates a situation where goods and services tend to be allocated to their most valued uses. And there's the role of prices is to provide a twofold function. There's an ex-ante function, which is to provide expectations about the profit, profitability of producing a good or service, right? So if we expect the price of, let's say, steel to continue continually rise, then entrepreneurs will redirect right, the production of, right, rather than producing, for example, platinum or other metals, they might be redirected to supply additional steel. But there's an ex post function, which is the ex post function will reveal once they've sold the output, if they've experienced a profit or loss. And if they've experienced a loss, they'll cut back and, and realize, wait, we need to correct our, the mistake we've made. If we made a profit, right, we can produce more of it because this is in, in demand by consumers. So those two, what we think of process, market processes, and price theory are, are flip sides of the same coin. They study, they begin in a world of disequilibrium and study how entrepreneurs, what catalyze a process that, cre that creates a tendency towards equilibrium itself. The best way to think about this is the law of one price, right? So if we have two different markets and we see the same good, be in, in those different markets being charged for different prices, there's an entrepreneurial profit opportunity to buy low in one market and to sell high. Right? You can buy goods inputs at a low price and resell them at a higher price in another market, or you can buy goods and services from one market which are being sold at a low price and then recombine them to sell an output in another market which generates additional value for goods and serve for consumers. Let me give an example to illustrate this, this, this Kersnerian point about the theory of the entrepreneurial market process. I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of Steve Jobs or, for example, Bill Gates. They're, they're, they're fantastic entrepreneurs in that sense. Um, but when we think of the word entrepreneurship, we're not, we're not talking about a specific class of individuals. We're not talking about businessmen or businesswomen, you might say. What we're talking about is the human propensity for people to realize previously unnoticed profit opportunities. Opportunities to, for example, engage in mutually beneficial exchange. And one of the most important entrepreneurs of the 20th century and one of the least known is a man named Malcolm McLean. 
And he essentially... Containerization. Containerization. Exactly right. Now, if you think about it for a second, in some sense, he didn't... It's not that he invented containerization. For thousands of years, human beings had been loading cargo in boxes. Right? So that's not new. Just to clarify for listeners, containerization is... Um, he's... He, McLean invented standardizing the size of um, of containers that go on ships. So when you see ship cargo ships now with all those giant boxes that are all the same size, it's easy to load them right onto trucks or onto trains. And that was his his innovation to standardize that and to rethink the way that we do that. Because before that, you had a bunch of different different size boxes and everything was very complicated. Yeah, and what's 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 fascinating about McLean is that he wasn't even a shipper. Mm-hmm. He was originally I. <clears throat> Correct me if I'm wrong, Dominic. I believe he was from North Carolina or South Carolina. North Carolina, yeah. And he owned a trucking company. Mm -hmm. And he would bring cargo on trucks up to New York, right? At the the time, most of the cargo, if I'm not mistaken, is unloaded in Newark today. But at the time, it was unloaded in, in Brooklyn. And what he noticed is it takes just about the same amount of time to for goods to be shipped across the Atlantic as it does for those same goods to be unloaded from the ships and then be reloaded on the back of a truck. But no, but there are other... So those are foregone profits, right? There's the saying, time is money. Mm-hmm. But there were other costs involved. There were, like, for example, longshoremen, right? They could potentially damage the goods accidentally, like maybe drop them or maybe just intentionally steal them, right? So there are those... There are transaction costs there of defining property rights. So what's interesting there is that McLean was able to see, coming from the outside, he was able to see a profit opportunity that the other ship owners did not realize. That is, if we can, as you say, standardize the size of containers and have those containers, right, unload those goods with a crane and just put them on the on the flatbed of a truck, well, in effect, right, we can dramatically reduce the cost of shipping. And he's the individual, if, if we're going to attribute one individual who probably is most directly responsible for the error of globalization that's occurred, mm-hmm. it's probably because of that technological innovation. Of course, the, the, the reduction in tariffs plays a big role, but certainly that innovation. Just think about all the goods and services that we enjoy you know, from abroad at a very low cost. I mean, I love eating bananas, right? I can't imagine having fresh bananas, right, delivered at such a low price if it wasn't for, not just for containerization, but refrigeration on containers as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, we. I think we really underrate the, the extent to which that is possible. I mean, you know, uh, so many, and then the amazing thing is as well is when you have that one entrepreneurship opportunity, it allows it sets up other entrepreneurship opportunities. Yeah. And so you can have people that build on it. I mean, it's difficult to think of Amazon being possible without containerization, without that that um, being able to move stuff around the world that easily. And I think a lot of people don't realize that even, even today, I mean, when you think about boats going across the ocean, it sounds really old-fashioned, but that's actually how we get most of our stuff because um, shipping is so much cheaper than airplanes. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, the amount of other entrepreneurship opportunities that get built on top of that original one uh, is is another aspect of it that I think we underrate. Yeah. So let me let me just give another example to illustrate because I want to tie in 
we've talked about a lot. So I want to tie mm-hmm. in all of the different aspects of of our discussion of Mises, Hayek, Alkshin, Demsets, Buchanan, and, and so on and so forth. You're, you're a dream podcast guest then. <laughs> One person that we haven't talked about that's very important is Julian Simon. Mm-hmm. And what we forget today is that Julian Simon is an economist who had first proposed right the voucher system that we that we see in airlines today so in the he wrote an article in 1968 and essentially what he proposed is why is it profitable for airlines to put people on standby right why why is it the fact so first of all why is it that airlines overbook right generally speaking they overbook because there's an expectation that at the last minute, some people might drop out. Mm-hmm. But we could think of this in terms of economics as a market failure. There's a, attributed with an externality, right? You and I, Dominic, we book, right? We, we basically are booking for flights, right? But in effect, by booking for, for, right, for seats, there are spillover costs onto third parties, Right. For example, there's a. In other words, there's a lack of defining property rights in seats. Who is going to get the seat when it gets overbooked? Mm-hmm. But with overbooking, what happens? Airlines bump individuals, or in the worst case scenario, as what happened with United Airlines, there are individuals that are like, there was that poor gentleman that was just dragged off the airline. Mm-hmm. But there's, but that's a situation in which the market process was not allowed to operate. Mm-hmm. Now, what did Julian Simon propose? Is that, well, we should allow trading in the availability of seats. That is, let's pro- he proposed an auction. In other words, if, if the flight is overbooked, we notice this nowadays, right? If people volunteer to give up their flight in exchange for a credit or in exchange for, I mean, I, in, in the past, when I've flown back from Europe, you know, there have been individuals, uh, there have been airlines that offered me a huge cash payment mm-hmm. to give up my seat. But what's in effect happening? It's the calculation argument that Mises had talking about, about the fact that you can have pricing without property. By allowing individuals to trade and exchange their seats, right? by, by allowing individuals to offer a price and compete against each other, not competing against each other in a cutthroat manner, but simply offering money in exchange for giving up the seat. That's a voluntary process, a peaceful and, and, and productive way in which to allocate seats when there's overbooking. Mm-hmm. Right? So if someone offers a high enough price, then Marcus, you the individual who might be bumped, right? you may be willing to give up that seat in exchange for the price. But how is that knowledge generated? How do we know who's going to be willing to give up their seat? How much is Marcus going to be willing to charge for that? Right? Independent of that pricing process, independent of the, the availability, the ability to, for people to give up their seat and allow someone and give the, someone else the ability to transfer title, you might say, to transfer the ability to be on that flight, mm-hmm. that information just won't be generated. It's right. It's initially subjectively held in people's minds, but then it's revealed to us through the auction, 
through people willing to bid for the seat. And when that transaction is made, we know how much the individual who wanted the seat was willing to pay for it. And we know the opportunity cost, how much they were the individual who's willing to give up their seat and receive the money, what the opportunity cost, what they had to be paid in order to you know, move to a, another flight. Now think about it. Think about all the steps that had to go into that process. Can the airlines predict that beforehand? Right? It's impossible. Right? Outside of that context of, context of exchange, that information doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, that is a... right there was a market failure associated with an externality, right? There's a spillover cost on a third party. They didn't agree to get, right? When they booked the flight, they had expected that they would be able to fly on that, on that, on that airplane. Now there's an involuntary spillover cost upon them, right? But the auction is a contractual arrangement, an institutional arrangement that emerges to reduce the transaction costs of discovering who are the individuals who most value the seats, right? Because if I, Dominic, just chose you mm-hmm. over Marcus, who was willing to pay higher, there might be a misallocation of resources. But we won't have that information outside of the pricing process. Mm-hmm. So it's all about the context, and it's all about the particulars of that of that situation. Yes. I guess as a, a final question to wrap up, Dr. Becky and yourself have a paper called Price Theory as a Prophylactic Against Popular Fallacies. Could you tell us exactly what that means and, and what that reflects on what price theory's role in the broader world is? Yeah, so there are two questions that we, and this sort of goes back to what we had discussed in the very beginning. The two questions what we try to address in that paper is, first of all, what is price theory and what role does price theory play for the economist? So as we've said, when we think about price theory, we're thinking about the role that disequilibrium prices play and how those disequilibrium prices generate profit and loss signals and generate a tendency towards which consumers, both buyers and sellers, are guided towards a better coordination in their buying and selling decisions. This is what we refer to as equilibrium, right? So when we're in equilibrium, all the gains from trade between buyers and sellers are completely exhausted. So that's the approach that I've been talking about as opposed to microeconomics, where standard mainstream microeconomics, the analytical focus is on equilibrium states and whether the world right, basically deviates from those equilibrium states and generate, as we've said, market failures. Now, as a prophylactic, we use this word prophylactic to say, well, the popular fallacies are that though markets are prone to externalities, asymmetric information, public goods, macroeconomic instability, what role role does the the economist have in, in explaining why these market failures exist? and how they get alleviated. And the, the role of the economist is to illustrate how entrepreneurs, as I've said, devise contractual and institutional arrangements. Because whenever, whenever there's a, what we call a market failure, what's in effect happening is that there's a, there are positive transaction costs 
in defining property rights. There's positive transaction cost in establishing who has the ability to use goods and services. So what the economist's role in providing this prophylactic against popular fallacies is to illustrate when there's monopoly power in the world, when there's asymmetric information in the world, or there are a problem of the provision of public goods, as in the case with light ships in the world. Well, those market failures set up future profit opportunities for entrepreneurs to erode the failure. And, and economists have a role in explaining how that process unfolds. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kandel. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> All right. Uh, Loose Bacon Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's. Make a becoming use of that which is your own. And whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.